back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 20 through 24. This is what uh, God has for us this morning as we work our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this passage of his word. Paul has just talked about <clears throat> the life of the Gentiles as they live apart from God and how dark it is. And then he says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. Uh, we did not come here to hear a man speak, but to hear God as his word is unfolded. And you have ordained a strange process for that to happen normally. That when the man whom God has called steps into the pulpit amongst the people of God on the Lord's day in the house of God and speaks the word of God, that that living and active word takes flight and it goes out to each heart and mind and it accomplishes whatever you have purposed for it to do. And we pray, Father, that you would correct us. We pray that you would enliven us. We pray that you would exhort us. We pray that you would rebuke us if that's what we need. And that your word would not return to you void as you have promised that it would not. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we ask it. Amen. Well, um, the Cathedral of St. Ambrose in Milan, Italy, is a beautiful medieval church, which is part of a, a group of buildings. Um, in, it's like a, a, a complex or a compound. In Italian, it's actually called Il Complesso Episcopale. That's my, that's my best Italian right there or the Episcopal complex. And the whole thing was basically a bishop's palace for the historically important diocese of Milan. You can see a picture of the, uh, the main cathedral there. There are other buildings around a square in the complex. In the 1890s, archeological excavations were conducted underneath the medieval church because ancient sources reported that the medieval church was built on top of a more ancient church. And as they began digging in the basement, so to speak, they, they found out that the old stories are true. Underneath the medieval church, there was an ancient church, or the remains of one, and this church dated to about 379 AD, and it was built, we know when it was built, almost exactly, it was built by a guy named Ambrose, who was a bishop during that time. And we know him today as St. Ambrose of Milan. That is actually a fresco that is, was made, or, a, or rather, I'm not sure what you call it. Uh, uh, what do you call it when they make it out of the little tiles? Anyway, a mosaic, thank you. It's a mosaic that was probably made either during his life or just a little bit after. 
and that is what he looked like. And, uh, and they actually, his body is actually preserved in the, in, inside of the, uh, the cathedral itself, and, and they examined the skull, and you'll notice that his eyes are a little bit, one's lower than the other, and when they looked at the skull of St. Ambrose, one eye socket is a little lower than the other, and so that matches up with what we have. Now, St. Ambrose, who you've probably never heard of, was famous in his own lifetime for two things. The first thing was he could read silently. Nobody else in the ancient world could do that. When people read in the ancient world, when they read to themselves, they muttered the words quietly to themselves. They did not know how to do it any other way. They apparently could not do it any other way. If you've seen Orthodox Jews uh, studying the Torah, you see them rocking back and forth and muttering to themselves. That's how people, all people read in the ancient world, but not Ambrose. He never made a sound. And so people used to come from miles around just to watch Ambrose read something. I, you know, they didn't have TV in those days, Netflix or anything like that. So, hey, what do you want to do tonight? Let's go down and watch Ambrose read. Okay, so that's what, so he was famous for that. The second thing he was famous for was that Ambrose was, humanly speaking, the one who led St. Augustine to Jesus Christ. Ambrose was, in his day, an accomplished orator. He was an educated man. He came from a, a noble family in the south of France. And, uh, and so he was Roman nobility and was well-educated and was, was going to have a brilliant career amongst the, the high echelons of Roman society. And uh, he was educated then in the discipline of oratory or rhetoric. Now, this was a, a highly valued skill in the ancient world, the ability to speak to speak to crowds and to be heard and to be intelligible and then to sway people with your speech. This was a very highly valued skill in the ancient world. And so it was really, if you were going to be a worldly success, this was a, a key to have this skill. And the people who were best at it were like rock stars in their day. And Ambrose was a very accomplished orator, and he'd studied it extensively, and he was a master of it. Augustine was also trained and was a very formidable speaker, but he was younger, and he was less experienced than Ambrose. And he came to Milan, and he sought Ambrose out. And Ambrose, even though he was a pagan, Ambrose received him kindly, and they became friends. And when Augustine was converted to Christ, Ambrose was the one who baptized him, and we know exactly when it happened. It happened on the 25th of April in 387 AD. And here is the next slide, the next couple of slides. Here is a picture of the very baptismal font in which Augustine was baptized by Ambrose. It's underneath that medieval church, and you can go down and visit it today if you go to Milan. Now, we have discovered many ancient images of Christian baptism. There are little carvings and pictures and things like that that we've discovered. We've also got some very ancient texts on Christian baptism that tell us a lot. One of the most ancient ones we have was written by a guy named Justin Martyr, who was born about the time that the Apostle John died and was martyred in 165 A.D., so this is very early after the completion of the New Testament. And he's writing only maybe a generation or two after the apostles. 
And according to Justin Martyr, the person being baptized first underwent a lengthy period of instruction, a process of instruction about Jesus, about the scriptures, and about how to live the Christian life. And this was done because the leaders in the early church wanted to be very candid with people about what becoming a Christian involved and what it could conceivably cost them. It could cost them everything. It could cost them their lives. It would probably cost them relationships with their families. And so they wanted to be sure that this person who came and who, who said they wanted to become a Christian, they wanted to be sure that the person was sincere, and they also wanted to be sure that they were coming in with their eyes wide open. Uh, they were also wanted to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, 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 this preparation time then was, was known it had a, a name as the, the catechumenate. And so people who wanted to become Christians were enrolled in the catechumenate, and they became what was known as catechumens. They were prospective members of the church. And this process would, would go on for a year or two. Now, when it came time to be baptized, it was a very joyous and yet solemn and intricate occasion. Baptisms were normally done on Easter morning, though they could be done at other times as well, but the norm was to be baptized at dawn on Easter. That's when Augustine was baptized. And so when the date of the baptism drew near, preparations were made. Both the catechumens and the clergy would fast for a couple of days to get ready for this. And then there would be an all-night vigil at the church where there would be further teaching, there would be scripture reading, and there would be prayer, and it would go on for the whole night. And then just before sunrise, the baptism would take place. And they would ask the person to be baptized. Why are you here? What are you here for? Do you renounce the devil and all of his works? Do you renounce sin and Satan and the world? Do you renounce the, the, uh, the control of your flesh over your life? And will you endeavor to live as godly in Christ Jesus? And the person would say, yes. And then the one to be baptized would remove all of their clothes and they would step into the waters of baptism naked and they would be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then as they departed the waters of baptism, they would be given a new white robe. And only then were they considered Christians in the fullest sense of the word. Only then were they members of the church. And now they were expected to live lives of complete obedience to Christ. They were expected to live in such a way as to bring glory to him before the watching world. And they now knew that they had themselves a new family, the people of God. They were part of a new humanity and they were different from that point on. They were marked by their baptism, they would say. Now, we don't know exactly how old that tradition is. We do know that it was in place and securely in place in many places as a general practice uh, before 165 AD, so it's very early. And it may possibly even go back to the time of the apostles or shortly after. 
But however old the practice is, it is remarkably congruent with what we find here in Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we touched on the life of the lost, if you can even call it a life. They darken and they harden their minds against God and against what can be known about God. And as a result, they're like spiritual zombies. They're dead, decaying things that are walking about, and they're trying to wring pleasure out of their bodies in a destructive process of diminishing returns. Now, what I did not spend any time on last week is what Paul says to his readers as he opens this paragraph in verse 17. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, the life that the Ephesian readers were called out of was exactly this kind of life. And all of those people in that church had been at one time or another dead men walking too. They were dead inside. And they were dying on the outside. But now Jesus had come to each of them and he came bringing new life and they had fallen into certain habits and patterns and modes of life as a result of their hard, darkened hearts and their calloused, ignorant minds. They were hard-headed and they were hard-hearted by habit because you know that once you settle something in your body, it tends to take on a life of its own. That's why you have such a hard time controlling, for instance, your temper because it's, your body is poised to do evil. And so they had these, these old habits in there. Paul talks about that in Romans as the motion of sin in our members. And so they were hard-hearted, and they were hard-headed. And, and Jesus tells us that the outward words and deeds of a life are a direct indicator of what's inside of a person. He said this several times and in several ways. One of the places he said it is in Matthew 7, and he put it like this. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, I want to submit to you, because of the way that Christianity has been explained to us in the modern world, erroneously, that we're not apt to believe what Jesus clearly says here, namely that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. We've been taught that you can be a good tree and still be covered with bad fruit, and, and, and yet we're still a good tree. And so we'll never try and cultivate the good tree. We, we will just accept that as the status quo and go on. And Jesus says here, no, you are mistaken. You must be transformed from a bad tree into a good tree. And, that way we'll, and the way that we'll know if that transformation has happened is by what sort of fruit you begin producing. Now, Paul is essentially saying the same thing here in Ephesians 4. And he gives us a little roadmap in today's verses. He says, the Gentiles live this way. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Now notice he doesn't say this is not what you learned about Christ. 
The Christian life isn't learning just about Christ. It's learning Christ. It isn't just believing in Christ. It's believing Christ. You know, there's a lot of people that believe in God, but they don't believe God. And the, the way you know that they don't believe God is they don't live as though God actually exists and said the things he said. They don't take those things into account in the way they live their life. So they're professors, but they're not possessors. Jesus wants you to live your life. You know that you've come to believe in Jesus when you live as though what Jesus says is true. That's the way you know. And until you reach that point, you don't, you don't believe in Jesus, not savingly. You, you may believe in Jesus in terms of giving mental assent to a, some things, but you don't live as though it's true, so you don't really believe. So what, what we're after here is the kind of belief that produces outward characteristics. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You learned Christ, he says. Now, um, if you remember all the way back in January 2021 when we started this chapter or this, this uh, study in the book of Ephesians, and we started actually in the book of Acts, and we examined Paul's time there. And if you don't remember that, that's fine. You may know your Bibles well enough to know the book of Acts and to know the story of Paul in Ephesus. But either way, it, you will perhaps remember that Paul taught for two full years while he was in Ephesus. He was allowed to stay there a long time. Circumstances allowed that to happen. And he taught every day in the lecture hall of a man named Tyrannus in Ephesus. And the Greek from Acts 19.9 says that he, quote-unquote, reasoned with them about Jesus. Now, the word means an interactive and back-and-forth discussion. Now, some of this was evangelistic, to be sure. It was aimed at getting people who didn't know Jesus into relationship with Jesus. But much of it was teaching new disciples the things they needed to know about Jesus and about life with him. So that they could, not so that they could pass some theology quiz later on, but so that they could live life interactively with Jesus in their day-to-day -day life. You see, we, we have some, uh, some, some strange things that go on in our education system in America. Um, we, we send our children to school to learn things. But the things that they learn, or many of the things that they learn, don't have much bearing on their everyday lives. Now, for instance, do you know the last time I used the quadratic formula in my everyday life? Now, I know somebody like Bob probably uses it every day, and he's going to come up afterwards and say, the quadratic formula is incredibly useful. Yeah, for you, Bob. But for, for normal people, not, not that you're not normal. Well, no, you aren't normal. Anyway, I'm going to stop here. For normal people, for people with normal jobs, the quadratic formula is not terribly useful, is it? Actually, it's funny. It's one of these things. I was, I was reading Facebook last night, and somebody had a post that said, made it through another day without using the quadratic formula. And I was like, me too, sister, you know. I don't need it. I had to learn it, but I don't need it. You know how much college French I remember? I remember the only joke I ever cracked in French. We were practicing conversations with our classmates, and I had been, I had a partner, uh, and she asked me what color my eyes were, and I had been out partying the night before, so I answered that my eyes are red. 
And my professor laughed at that. That's the only reason I remember saying that. Now, can you guess how many life opportunities I've had to walk up to a French person and tell them that my eyes are red? Zero. Paul didn't teach them that sort of stuff. Paul brought them the words of Christ, and he taught them in such a way that they learned Christ. In other words, it was more like an apprenticeship in a union. Now, all of you who have been apprentices know that there's a certain amount of bovine scatology that goes on with that. You might be sweeping floors and stuff like that for a while, but that's not supposed to be that way for very long. You're there to learn whatever it is you're apprenticing to learn so that you can be a mechanic, so that you can be an electrician, so that you can be a plumber, whatever, a machinist or whatever it is. You're there to acquire life skills. And that's what learning Jesus is like when it's done right. You're learning life skills. And, so, and Paul taught them that way. He taught them not about Jesus. I mean, he did, you do have to teach about Jesus, but he taught them Jesus. They learned Christ. Now, if you've got a Bible that has cross-references, you probably see a reference there, if you look in your middle column, to Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. And that is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. You know what that passage says? Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn what? Learn how to live with Jesus in the kingdom. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And there's really three references right in a row in Ephesians 4 that deal with learning. You have learned Christ. Assuming you heard about him, you were taught in him. A lot of scholars look at that and they say, that's evidence of a very structured teaching process for new disciples very early on. That implies a very developed body of important information and important practices that the apostles thought it crucial for every single Christian to know. You know what's changed since the first century in the time of the apostles? Nothing. Do you know what you need if you're going to walk with Christ successfully? That. You need to learn Christ. Now, this isn't the Christian equivalent of the quadratic formula. This is truth which you interactively learn for the living of your life. And I don't think it ends till you die. Are you learning now? When was the last time you learned anything? You know, it, it, it's fun because I know people in this congregation and, and I'm walking with them, especially in the spiritual formation classes, and we, we talk, and the whole point of those classes is not to acquire information, it's to learn how to walk with Jesus. And so there's people in this congregation who are learning so much. They're learning how little they actually trust Christ to handle the details of their lives and take care of them. And then they're like, okay, I need to learn how to trust Him. And they're doing that. 
They're learning how to be free of anxiety and how to be free of fear and trust God with their day-to-day life. They're learning how to deal graciously and submissively with disappointment, with unmet expectations, with people that are not treating them as they should be treated without getting disappointed and without getting angry. I'm learning a lot too, right alongside them. I'm learning, for instance, to lay aside pride. I'm learning how to bless those who curse me and to to be at rest in my heart and to pray for people who seem to hate me for whatever reason. I'm learning all kinds of other things too. The last nine or 10 months have actually been some of the most intense spiritual growth time in my whole life. I'm learning to lay aside things that have tormented me and have shredded my soul for decades. And I love it. I love it. And I want you to learn those things too. I want Tabernacle to be a place where people come to learn those things. Learn how to walk with Jesus. Now, what was the focus of this practical curriculum that the Ephesian readers were undergoing? What's the the basic outline of it? Well, the focus, friends, was spiritual transformation. And once again, we see this Uh, this outline of this ancient baptismal ceremony, don't we? As I said, when the person approached the waters of baptism, they stripped off all their old clothes and laid them aside before entering the waters of baptism. Well, that was symbolic, wasn't it? It was symbolic of what Paul talks about here, taking off the old self, as the ESV translates it, the old man, as the as the New King James and others translate it, the old self or the old man that belonged to that old mode of life, that life of darkness, that life of decay and corruption. And the old self behaved like what Paul described in last week's text. It was ignorant of the life of God. It was alienated from the life of God. It was living for sensuality and every kind of impurity. It was hard of heart and it was darkened in the mind. Take that old guy off, says Paul. Take that old girl off, says the truth as it is in Jesus. Shed them like filthy clothes before you take a bath. That old life is not to be improved. It's not to be cleaned up. It's not to be refurbished. It's to be killed and laid aside like you would lay aside worn out filthy garments, so that the deceitful desires no longer run the show. Now, why does Paul call the desires deceitful? Well, because those desires that the world lives by, what, what, are, what is everybody after, really, at bottom? Everybody just wants to be happy. We do, and there's nothing wrong with that. I want to be happy too, and I want you to be happy. But, but there, the devil has a way of promising you happiness and then reneging at the end. And the flesh looks at that and goes, oh, I I want that. The old man looks at that and goes, oh, I want that'll make me happy. It's sparkly. It's pleasant. It must be good. And they think, if I just do this, I'll be happy. And Satan laughs because he gives it to them. And, And it's destroying them in slow motion. And as it's destroying them, they're becoming less and less happy. 
And Paul says, no, take, take those desires off. They're deceitful. They promise happiness. They promise fulfillment. They promise a good life, but they lie. And they end up bringing misery in this world and torment for eternity in the world to come. They seem good because they produce a kind of corrupt pleasure. But even the pleasure turns to decay and ashes. You ever had somebody walk up and scratch your back when you haven't had your back scratched in a while? Doesn't that feel good? My wife was, I was sitting on the floor and she was laying in the bed and she just started scratching my head and I was like, oh, I was going to get up and do something, but I'm not going anywhere until you stop that, right? But what if she did it for an hour or two or three? Well, by then you'd be like, get your hand off my head. That doesn't feel good anymore. And that's how it is with the the pleasures of the body. They, They feel good for a minute and then they feel less and less and less good. And that's what the devil's banking on, that he can get you to go for that. And so the house he's trying to to sell you, that the devil's trying to sell you, it looks pretty from the curb, but it's horribly ugly when you open the front door and look inside. And if you go down in the basement, look at the foundations, you're like, get me out of here before this place falls down on my head. You take the old self off, says Paul, and you put on the new self, which God planted in you when you were born again. And God's new nature is characterized, says Paul, by true righteousness and holiness. It is a new creation. The Bible talks about this process in a couple of different ways and and in many different places. One of the ways it talks about it here is the old self or the old man. The word is anthropos, where we get our word anthropology, and the new self. Flesh and spirit is another way of saying the same thing. And in Galatians chapter 5, which was our call to worship, Paul describes this process in detail, doesn't he? When God saves you, he places his indwelling Holy Spirit inside of you. And your body then becomes the temple of the Spirit of God. That's why you shouldn't commit sexual immorality, because, because your body is now the temple of the Spirit of God. And he begins fixing up the temple. And he begins reconfiguring your life and your character to suit him. And and so we see this. This was our call to worship. Look at what he says again. And Nancy, if you want to put it up, that's fine if you can do it real quick. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. Notice that he puts anger and orgies and drunkenness and dissensions and envy and sorcery in the same list. Like we, we want to think, you know, being snotty to somebody else is just a minor thing. And, and Paul says, no, it's the equivalent of sorcery. It's, the, it's on the same list, guys. 
There's not, it's not like, well, this little sin's okay, it's not that big a deal, and that one over there is big and bad and ugly and hairy. It's all bad. Okay? It's all bad. Yammering about somebody else behind their back, just as bad as orgies when it comes to the outcome for your soul. Okay? So, uh, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now, how does this process of taking off and putting on work practically? Well, Paul tells us in brief in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 23, doesn't he? He says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The mind, in other words, is the key to renewal. I cannot overstate this enough. The, there's all kinds of things going on inside of you that shouldn't be going on that you do not have direct control over. But you do have some measure of direct control over what you will do with your mind, about where you will place it, what you will allow it to dwell on, what you will consider true, what you will consider false, what you will consider attractive, what you will consider ugly. You have a lot of freedom there, and you have a lot of responsibility there. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The, the verb to be renewed actually tells us a lot. It, it's first of all in the passive voice. So it's not something you do. It's something that is done to you by God, by the Spirit of God in particular. But it's not something that you have no control over. It's not like the, the Spirit of God mugs you and forces you to do things. No, you have an active part to play. And your part is bringing your mind to God and then presenting your mind to God submissively so that he can renew it. And the grammar teaches us something else. It teaches us that this is not a one-time event. It teaches us that it's a continual process. In other words, continually allow yourself to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That would be a good way to translate that. Now, what will the renewing enable your mind to do? Once your mind is renewed, what does that enable you to do? Well, we have to go to another place in Scripture and pick up in the middle of another presentation of these ideas in the book of Romans and in chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to focus on one verse, but I'm going to kind of tell you what's going on right before that verse. In this passage, Paul is describing in detail what happens when a person experiences the new birth in Christ Jesus. And Paul says the old nature is crucified in that moment that you receive Christ. It is crucified. Now, you, a lot of people hear that and they think dead. 
No. Crucified people lived quite a while, generally, on the cross as they were dying. Like days. Okay? It's, it's not dead. Your old self has been crucified. It's nailed to the cross. It is dying. It is weakened. It is in a position of disadvantage where it cannot do as much as it used to be able to do, but it is not dead yet. It's dying. It's as good as dead in terms of what the outcome is going to be. It's mortally wounded, but it's not dead yet. But there's also this new self, and it's related in some way, it's connected in some way with the power that was unleashed at Christ's resurrection. So you've got this old self, this old nature that was crucified with Christ. And so there's some kind of spiritual connection there that reaches across time and space. And you've got this new self, this new nature that has been raised with Christ, says Paul, and that objectively happened when you received Christ. And when you received Jesus inside of you, things changed. You got reconfigured in your invisible parts. So says Paul in verse 11, consider, the old King James says reckon. The word in Greek means to arrive at this conclusion after having examined the facts and then proceed in light of them. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's a mental activity. In other words, you've got this new mind, you've got these, this new reality inside of you. One thing is being weakened and killed, nailed to the cross. It's defeated. It's just not dead yet. And the other is full of the resurrection power of Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is don't just incorporate this information into your conceptual grid. I mean, do that. But what he's saying is, believe it to be the case. Consider it true. Act as though it has happened to you because it has, and then proceed with your life based on that assumption. Don't let sin, he says, be the king of your mortal bodies anymore. Don't present your various body parts to sin and say, hey, sin, what do you want me to do with my hands? Hey, sin, what do you want me to do with my tongue? Hey, sin, what do you want me to do with my feet or my mind or my eyes? Any part of your body that you can think of that can be used to sin. We have spent our whole life presenting that to sin and going, what do you want to do with it? And sin goes, I don't know. Let's think of something good. And we're like, okay, it'll be a lot of fun. And, and we're not to do that anymore. Why? Because we've got a new power. We've got a new ability. And we've got a new boss. Sin no longer reigns. The word literally is, is acting as king. Sin's no longer the king. Instead, we're to present our various body parts to God and say, now God, what do you want me to do with my tongue, my hands, my feet, my mind, my eyes, and any other parts you can think of? to go as part of an active, thoughtful process and go, I've got a new place to, that, that's the center of reign inside of me, of rule, of kingship. I don't have to let the old sinful nature be the king anymore, because it's not. It's on its way out. 
Instead, here's the new nature, and here's God, and here's the power, the resurrection power of Jesus, who not only tells me what to do, but will give me the ability to do it as I seek him, as I abide in him. And so you say to God, what do you want me to do with this, boss? You present your body to God and say, this is your temple. Make it holy. Do with it what you want to do with it. And do that as a habit of your life, which is what it means to walk by the Spirit. That's, what, what, that's how Galatians chapter 5 and Romans 6 and Ephesians 4, they all relate. To put on the new man continually is the same thing as going and continually submitting your members to Christ is the same thing as walking by the Spirit. And when you do that, says Paul in, Ephesians, in Galatians 5, you will not do the deeds of the flesh. Instead, you will do the deeds of the Spirit. And what will those look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, the life, when you think about it, that you really want to live. A life of beauty. A life of goodness. Now, our time is gone for this week. But next week, if God spares us, we're going to begin to start, because the rest of Ephesians is like, all right, since you're doing this, this is what it's going to look like in detail. And so we're going to explore in detail. We're going to begin to explore what your life will look like when you do this, when you put this into effect, when you continually put on the new man, when you continually walk by the Spirit, when you continually present your, your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, for you are my rock, my redeemer.